Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. You are entering the news vault from KCBS Radio. Flames and the smoke. I have a tape recorder in my hand. Now, nobody would think of doing that. The newsmen were blocking the door. It worked for a couple of seconds. Bringing the sounds of history back to life. Here is your host, Stan Bunger. You know, certain names pop up often as we dig through the audio archives here at KCBS, and one of them is Diane Feinstein. She, of course, has been on the political scene for a very long time. This is an example from August 27, 1987, when KCBS broadcast a lengthy special report called The Feinstein Years. It was produced and reported by longtime KCBS San Francisco City Hall reporter Barbara Taylor and examined the legacy already by then, in 1987, a lengthy one, of a political figure who had served at San Francisco City Hall for more than 17 years. She was sworn in as a city supervisor in 1970 and, of course, became mayor upon the assassination of George Moscone, re-elected in her own right. Feinstein, after the broadcast of this special in 1987, would run for governor of California in 1990 and fail to win then would be elected to the U.S. Senate in 1992. And, of course, as of the recording of this podcast episode, she remains in the U.S. Senate. So back to 1987, August of 1987, for a KCBS special report, The Feinstein Years. As president of the Board of Supervisors, it's my duty to make this announcement. Both Mayor Moscone and Supervisor Harvey Milk have been shot and killed. Diane Feinstein came to a job she never thought she would have in the wake of a cataclysmic event no one ever dreamed could happen. I had been defeated for mayor twice. I was convinced I was not electable, that um, the people of the city didn't want me for one reason or another. In 1978, she had given up. She was insecure, discouraged, and ready to get out of politics entirely when the bullets of a 38 Smith & Wesson changed the course of San Francisco's history and rejuvenated the failing political career of Diane Feinstein. My political life, I felt, was over, and then, boom, this happened. And in the days that followed the assassinations of Mayor George Moscone and Supervisor Harvey Milk, Diane Feinstein would search deep within herself for the strength, confidence and outward calm she would need to hold government together. That first year was a terrible year. Um, there was Jonestown, there was the aftermath of Jonestown, there was the assassination, there was the White Knight riot. I was being sued by Joe Mazzola for slander and was in a court for three weeks. There was a very tough election campaign. It was the first year of um, Proposition 13, and we'd lost one half of all our revenues. But she survived her first year in office and a bitter election campaign in 1979. No longer a caretaker, Diane Feinstein was finally elected in her own right, and on January 8, 1980, she stood proudly before the Board of Supervisors to take the oath of office. 
Her lifelong dream had been realized, and now a great challenge lay ahead. Today, on the threshold of a new decade, the demands of the 1980s loom large indeed. There's much to do. Housing to build, a port to rejuvenate, the Muni to modernize, and streets to make safe. Jobs must be created, new businesses built, our economy sustained, our neighborhoods strengthened, schools improved, and the unique and historic quality of our city preserved. Throughout the decade, Mayor Feinstein would struggle to meet the lofty goal she set for herself in her 1980 inaugural speech. There's an old saying, when the going gets tough, the tough gets going, and I found that happens in me naturally. Um, I am very good in a crisis. I feel my mind change, actually. I can think very clearly, a calm takes over, and I can make decisions at a point of crisis that are generally pretty solid. In some cases, problems were solved. In other cases, they proved to be insolvable, and many times Feinstein found herself just treading water. The cable cars were rebuilt, the Muni repaired, the Moscone Convention Center completed, the crime rate went down. But at the same time, the AIDS crisis took a severe toll on city resources and thousands of homeless and mentally ill people wandered the streets. While tens of thousands of new jobs were created, almost as many were lost as businesses fled the city for the suburbs. The Feinstein administration toiled to create new housing for people and parking spaces for cars, but could not keep up with the ever-growing demand. During this report, we will examine the Feinstein administration and how her policies on growth, housing, transportation, health care, poverty, and law enforcement have changed the city of San Francisco. It is, in many ways, a story of phenomenal personal success, but it is also, in some ways, a tale of miscalculation and disappointment. Diane Feinstein and Turbulent Financial Times when our special report, The Feinstein Years, continues on News 74 KCBS. <laughs> Diane Feinstein became mayor during Turbulent Financial Times. Government had been brought to its knees by a national economic recession and a taxpayers' revolt in California. In 1979, Feinstein would call upon all her inner resources to recover from the fiscal disarray brought about by the passage of Proposition 13. Money! I had to put together the first budget, which was an intense trauma, I must say. Um, and very, very difficult. As I, I laugh as I look back at it now, but at the time, I wasn't laughing. Diane Feinstein has had to be mayor of San Francisco during a couple of major transitions that would have probably um, absolutely defeated most any other person that would have been mayor. Michael McGill, the executive director of SPUR, says as a result of Feinstein's management objectives, she has been able to do more with less year after year. She instituted better accounting a more rational budget process, management by objective. She uh, emphasized having her staff go to department heads periodically every quarter and say, what are you doing? 
How are you meeting your objectives? Feinstein overcame the first financial crisis of her administration, but the people of San Francisco paid the bill through increases in the hotel tax, the business tax, the parking tax, muni fares, and other service fees. Before long, the business community and neighborhood activists were crying foul, and the grumbling would continue throughout the next nine years. This is considered now, despite her efforts, to be an anti-business climate that is just seething and uh, uh, and hurting this city. I think that uh, there's no question uh, that if you um, talk with most San Franciscans who've lived here for the last nine years, um, that they will say, they will tell you that uh, um, the, the texture of life in San Francisco uh, has gotten worse. The critics came from all directions, from Lee Dolson of the Downtown Association on the right to community organizer Calvin Welsh on the left. But in 1983, Feinstein supporters, including Michael McGill of Spur, would point to the bottom line, a city treasury bulging with a $150 million surplus. And when that surplus materialized, she and the board worked together to allocate a lot of it to capital improvements which is something San Francisco has been lagging behind on for several years. So I'd say with un she's been an unqualified success in that area. Feinstein spent the surplus by funding new programs for the homeless and AIDS victims, by repairing dilapidated city buildings and replacing worn-out muni buses. $23 million was spent to roll back the business tax and the price of a muni fast pass and to hold the line on the highly unpopular sewer tax. I think that's important to do it. When you can, you ought to reduce taxes and fees. Um, the, the, the real heart of the matter is knowing when. State Senator Quentin Kopp, then a member of the Board of Supervisors, said Feinstein did not go far enough. Look, it's just common sense. If you have excess money, uh, why not cut taxes and why not cut the fees? So that the excess uh, isn't there as... Uh, like the apple was uh, to uh, Eve in the garden. But government was expanded. More workers were added to the city payroll. And by 1986, Mayor Feinstein's two-year spending spree had taken its toll. The surplus was gone, and with a $76 million budget shortfall predicted, the city was on the verge of going bust. So Feinstein again went in search of new revenue. Up went the fast pass fare, back came the utility user's tax, up went fees at museums, swimming pools, and parking lots. It was another wild ride on the mayor's physical roller coaster, but the budget was balanced and Feinstein has no regrets. I've thought about this, and um, I think I've made mistakes, but frankly not in this area. I think financially the city is in good shape. Critics say that although Feinstein survived each budget crisis, she left the cupboard bare for the next mayor. Bill Witte, the director of the mayor's office of housing and economic development, disagrees. The fundamental and most important thing among economic issues is that the city have a balanced economy and a budget. And I think by, certainly from my point of view, by every measurable indicator, the mayor has done an extremely good job in that regard. While government grew during the Feinstein years, so did the city itself. High-rise buildings mushroomed throughout downtown and threatened to creep into Chinatown in the south of Market. The sky, scrapers fill the air. Will you keep on building higher Till there's no more room up there? The principal 
shall we say, unpaid debt in the Feinstein years is the extraordinary explosion in commercial office development in, in the city. Slow growth activists such as Calvin Welsh repeatedly asked the mayor to put on the brakes, but the building continued at a furious pace with the amount of office space downtown growing by almost 23 million square feet, not including another five and a half million now under construction. Certainly the pace of, of life in San Francisco has uh, increased. It's taken on much more of, uh, of a character uh, of, of a northeastern city. Today, there are only about four blocks in the entire city to which you can build up to 400 feet, and there may not even be four blocks. So the city has been dramatically downzoned. But it was not until 1983 that Mayor Feinstein responded with the downtown plan limiting the amount, size, and shape of new office buildings, and it was not until 1985 that the plan was in place. By then, voters had become disillusioned, and the result was Proposition M, severely limiting growth throughout the city. Even planning director Dean Macris concedes Feinstein waited too long. One of the major regrets I've had during my time here is that we didn't have the downtown plan in place by 1980-81. If it had gone faster with less controversy and less opposition and been enacted as it was presented by planning, I believe we would have had a far better mechanism and a far fairer mechanism to control growth. The building glut downtown has had both a positive and negative effect. The one-time 1% 1 vacancy rate has risen to 18%, enabling businesses to lease choice office space for under $20 a square foot. The construction industry has prospered, but once sunny areas of downtown are now shrouded in shadows, traffic flowing in from the suburbs clogs the bridges, and mass transit has been stretched to the limit. New housing construction has not kept pace with the need. We're not getting in our housing mitigations and our transit mitigations even half of what it was actually costing the city to provide those things. So the more development you had, the more out of balance and out of whack the whole equation became. Brad Paul of the North of Market Planning Coalition claims development fees for housing, transit, and child care have been inadequate. Other critics, including State Senator Quentin Kopp, said they went too far. Gosh, those are horrendous, but of course that's part of the city's anti-growth philosophy. That's part of the anti-development uh, philosophy. That's an anti-business attitude. But through it all, Mayor Feinstein remained committed to the belief that growth was needed for the public benefit. I happen to believe cities are places of opportunity where people can find work. We had lost our blue-collar jobs. We were essentially a white-collar city. Um, you needed opportunity. The downtown became our largest source of employment. Feinstein's efforts to keep the economy thriving through office growth downtown may have backfired. Planning Director Dean Macris. There are now somewhat of a reduction in jobs downtown uh, because of uh, shifting of, uh, of corporations to uh, other locations uh, within the metropolitan area. In fact, despite the construction of almost 23 million square feet of new downtown office space during her administration, the city lost between 20,000 and 30,000 jobs when major employers fled to the suburbs. The overall number of jobs in the city has increased by about 4,500, but only because of small business growth. 
Housing, mass transit, and traffic have all been significantly impacted by Mayor Feinstein's growth policies. A closer look at these issues when our special report, The Feinstein Years, continues on New 74 KCBS. When Mayor Feinstein went shopping for her own home, she headed straight for Presidio Terrace, the most exclusive street in San Francisco. She closed the deal on her two-dozen-room Tudor dream house without even quibbling about the $1.5 million asking price. Our house is a very, very, very fine house With two cats in the yard Life used to be so hard When it comes to house hunting in San Francisco, Diane Feinstein is one of the lucky ones. San Francisco has one of the tightest housing markets in the country, and 80% of the city's residents cannot afford to buy the median-priced home of $161,000, let alone a million-dollar mansion. To her credit, Feinstein identified the housing crisis early in her administration as a top priority, and even Mitchell Omerberg of the Affordable Housing Alliance gives the mayor high marks for new housing development. Given what's realistic, they have done a reasonably good job. It's very difficult to build affordable housing because when you cost out the question of the land, the labor, the materials, and the financing, it just doesn't add up to what most people can afford today. Under the mayor's leadership, a creative financing program was developed to enable first-time home buyers to purchase homes with low-interest government-financed loans. Downtown developers were forced to contribute to an affordable housing fund that has produced hundreds of new housing units. We have begun, in the first five years of 1980, 15,000 new units of housing. That's more than was built in the entire decade of the 70s. Bill Whitty, the head of the mayor's office of housing and economic development, claims Feinstein's housing policies have produced 5,000 new or rehabilitated low and moderately priced homes and apartments. I believe that this city has been as successful as any in the country and has been widely copied, in fact, in terms of using every conceivable form of financing mechanism to reduce housing costs, to reach as low an income as possible using every scrap of federal and state money. But not all of the mayor's housing initiatives have been successful. Feinstein's dream of seeing 7,500 new units at Mission Bay has been bogged down in bureaucratic red tape, and community opposition has delayed one major affordable housing project at Poly High School and all but killed another at Balboa Reservoir. The old International Hotel site, where low-cost senior citizen housing has been planned, sits vacant because of a decade of painful procrastination by the developer. The housing problem, concedes Witty, is far from solved. I can't sit here and tell you that um, in the aggregate, San Francisco's housing problem is near being solved. It isn't. My only caveat is that there's only so much that the government can do. Unfortunately, that doesn't make a dent in the supply and demand in the city, and I'll be the first to admit that. Studies done by the Bay Area Council show that rents in San Francisco continue to be the highest in the Bay Area, and the vacancy rate the lowest at one and a half percent. 
Most disturbing, however, is the fact that even with rent control, the average San Franciscan must spend an incredible 60% of his income to rent the median-priced apartment at $895 a month. I get letters from people who are on Social Security checks, and they tell me that you know they're they get. 485 a month and their you know rent is 425 and the, and the rest is groceries um I mean, they're in big trouble. Mitchell Omerberg of the Affordable Housing Alliance says the Feinstein administration went wrong by concentrating on new construction instead of protecting the tenants who live in the 200,000 existing rental units. We have a, a rent ordinance that it you know does a, a reasonable job of protecting people as long as they are fortunate enough to be in their homes it's sort of like musical chairs if you get up out of your chair you're in big trouble because when you go back to sit down again it's not going to be there it's not the best of all possible worlds but if in my opinion if you make this a strong rent control city you will see the deterioration of property uh, that's unprecedented it is now the noon hour and Diane Feinstein is running late for a luncheon meeting across town. Her driver and police bodyguard Gary Womack maneuvers the sleek black Lincoln Continental through a maze of traffic, deftly works his way around double parked trucks and cars and pulls into a red zone next to the St. Francis Hotel. Unlike most San Franciscans, the mayor has no parking problems. Damn this traffic jam. How I hate to be late, it hurts my motor to go so slow. Damn, this traffic jam, time I get home, my supper will be cold. Damn, this traffic jam. Can't ever park on North Beach well, anywhere, you have to go into a lot. I was originally from New York, it's just as bad here now as it was in New York then and now. It's crazy. It's terrible. All the time I have problems with this. There's no place to park. It's Stop. terrible, that's all I have to say. Sucks. Oh, it's terrible. I mean, it's it's it, it's the worst. It's the worst. There are about 34,000 more cars in San Francisco today than when Feinstein became mayor. But the city's parking authority, headed by Feinstein confidant Ray King, has only created about 2,100 new off-street parking spaces. The numbers dictate that, that there is no real guarantee that we're going to solve the problem. We can only try and attack it and get as much parking as we can in the areas that need it the worst. Three years ago, Feinstein vowed to build 10 new city parking lots. She's really zeroing in on the problems that San Francisco residents have in their neighborhoods finding a place to park. And that's really been the emphasis of the parking authority. However, only one new lot on Lombard Street is actually under construction. Another at Bush and Polk is in the planning stages. In fact, during much of the Feinstein administration, developers were prohibited from including parking in their downtown office projects as part of the city's transit first policy. And community organizer Calvin Welsh insists even now Feinstein is exacerbating, not solving, the parking crisis. One of the better secrets of the downtown plan, a, 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 a solution to development uh, strongly supported by the mayor and by her planning department, actually calls for the eradication the elimination of about 5,000 downtown parking spaces. Parking problems go hand-in-hand hand with traffic congestion. Under orders from the mayor, police are now giving out thousands of tickets downtown each week to keep the streets clear, and more and more curbside parking has been removed during commute hours to accommodate drivers. 
but Feinstein has been unable to put a dent in the problem of double parking and traffic at critical intersections often reaches gridlock during rush hour. One vexing problem Mayor Feinstein was able to solve was, in a word, the Muni. In 1981, angry Muni drivers stranded on street corners finally prompted the Feinstein administration to do something about San Francisco's worn-out bus fleet. A bus would go out and break down, or not get out because it was broken down, and therefore miss its run. Uh, that was brought very readily to my attention by complaints. By September, mechanical breakdowns had forced the cancellation of over 130 runs a day, and over a quarter of the fleet was inoperable. Muni maintenance workers seemed ill-equipped to make repairs. A problem that had been largely ignored during the early part of the Feinstein years was now top priority, and the mayor announced she would personally attend to the crisis. What we did was put the public utilities on a weekly reporting basis with figures, with all kinds of maintenance figures for the week, missed runs, drivers not showing up, and so on. Fourteen-year Muni veteran George Newkirk remembers those years well. Mayor Feinstein has uh, supported the Muni. She has been a hard taskmaster, and we uh, had to prove uh, things to her but we enjoyed the challenge. Diesel buses were temporarily leased from other transit districts and new buses were ordered. New managers were brought in to oversee maintenance. The results, though long in coming, have been impressive. The Muni now has an excellent service record. Missed runs have been reduced from as high as 30% during rush hour to just a little over 1%, while ridership has climbed from 490,000 in 1979 to over 800,000 today. Route changes have made the Muni more convenient for cross-town passengers. I believe it is a different transit system. It has taken the pains and, and the, the difficulties that we've had uh, or since 79 to make us uh, what we are today. But we are a different organization. But the improved service came at a high price. Under the Feinstein administrations, we've now seen one, two, three, four, I believe, four increases in in rider costs either direct uh, fare box or uh, manipulation of the of the cost of the fast pass community organizer calvin welsh may gripe that the basic muni fare rose three hundred percent during the feinstein administration but newkirk and feinstein see a lot to defend in the increases if you look at what seventy five cents buys today versus what a quarter bought in nineteen seventy nine I, I think it's a wash. I think you're getting more than what you were getting for your quarter in 79. People understand that costs are going up, that federal subsidies are going down. They want the level of service. And our goal, very frankly, is to develop a system whereby people can go to work without buses passing them by. With the Muni repaired, Mayor Feinstein was free to turn her attention to other crises that were not so easily fixed. A closer look at AIDS and the homeless when our special report, The Feinstein Years, continues on News 74 KCBS. In 1982, Mayor Feinstein was faced with a mutiny. Both the 49ers and the Giants threatened to desert San Francisco because of the conditions at Candlestick Park. And at one very volatile point, Eddie DiBartolo called Candlestick a pigsty. 
Feinstein launched a major initiative to build a downtown ballpark, but five years later she has failed to convince one corporate sponsor to put up money for construction. She has managed to pacify the 49ers with millions of dollars of improvements at Candlestick, but her baseball stadium project remains a major embarrassment to this day. And while Eddie DeBartolo and Bob Lurie were posturing to sports fans, other San Franciscans were facing life and death matters that made the stadium battle seem almost ludicrous. In 1982, thousands of homeless and mentally ill people were sleeping on the streets and a strange new incurable disease called Acquired Immune Deficiency Syndrome had taken the lives of 55 residents. The death toll would pass 1,700 by January 1987. When Diane Feinstein first became mayor, San Francisco's homeless were ignored. But as the economy deteriorated and more and more poor people were forced to sleep in the street, the public demanded action. The emergence of a huge underclass in America, in every city, that is suddenly rootless, jobless, without the personal resources or abilities to maintain themselves. In 1983, Mayor Feinstein responded by spending $600,000 to house people in private nonprofit shelters. Today, the budget for the city's homeless program has grown to $7.5 million and is spent on bargain basement tenderloin hotels that critics say are worse than nothing. And they put all the worst people into one called the St. George. And they're literally carrying out dead bodies and wounded bodies every couple of weeks from that building. And I would never, I would sleep in the street before I'd sleep in that hotel, and I think that's a very valid criticism. Brad Paul of the North of Market Planning Coalition believes the money Feinstein spent on homeless hotels has been wasted, a view shared in part by Robert Tobin, the director of Hospitality House. The lack of shelter is one consequence of being homeless. It is done, and it doesn't deal with almost any of the causes except for that if you are homeless, you're likely not to get a good enough night's sleep to be able to deal with it tomorrow any better than you have today. Tobin, who with Brad Paul sits on the mayor's homeless task force, says while there is no denying Feinstein's compassion, she does not understand the need for a total program for the homeless. Using a phone to make appointments, uh, using an address to get mail, to put on a resume, being able to type up a resume and copy it, um, those are being able to put on a suit coat if you need it or you know, a good pair of shoes, those sorts of things. Feinstein's overall philosophy when it comes to helping the needy could best be summed up by saying, do enough, but not too much. It is that philosophy, along with budgetary restraints, that has prompted her to cap homeless spending at $7.5 San Francisco has the most um, flagrantly liberal welfare policies in the state of California, and they're com coming home to haunt us because the city has become a magnet and is attracting people. Feinstein cited the same fears this year when she vetoed a welfare reform package that would have loosened some of the eligibility requirements and set up a job training program for general assistance recipients, a veto criticized in social work circles as inhumane. 
Although the number of people receiving general assistance has doubled since 1979 and city funding has increased from $11 million to $21 million a year, one would be hard-pressed to say that Feinstein's policies have made even a dent in the problem of poverty. More and more poor and homeless are clamoring for help every day, and the city has no more to offer. We're beginning now to, to understand we're in it for the long haul. We had better provide the casework the money management, the kind of controls, preventing people from double-dipping, but at the same time putting them in a healthier setting. At the same time, Mayor Feinstein was waging an uphill war against poverty and the homeless. She was confronted with a medical crisis of staggering proportions. No one had ever heard of AIDS when Diane Feinstein became mayor in 1978. But within five years, she would describe the fatal disease that was spreading like wildfire through the gay community as a public health priority of the highest order. At that time, it was primarily a gay disease, and people responded. And there was a lot of dialogue. We went through a big trauma on whether to close the bathhouses or not, and what kind of information should be given out, um, what kind of support. And through this dialogue, sometimes heated, I think a very fine network of services, both directed to prevention, hospitalization, hospice, counseling, education has developed. She's been right out front and uh, courageous on the city level and, and been a real model for what other mayors and governors and Congress people ought to be doing. Tim Wolford, gay activist and director of the AIDS Foundation, has high praise for Mayor Feinstein's efforts in combating AIDS and for good reason. The city's financial commitment to AIDS has grown from $180,000 in 1982 to over $18 million today. There's always more to be done, more that we who are out there doing it would like to do. But if you compare San Francisco, I mean, we have a city budget for AIDS that's larger I think it's still true that it's larger than any state budget other than the California state budget on AIDS. Uh, so, obviously, we're doing a lot more than anyone else, and she should be very proud of that. Although the educational programs may have come too late to protect the estimated 50% of the gay male population that already carries the HIV antibody, Jeff Amory, the head of the AIDS Activity Office, says the programs have still been incredibly successful. The health department has um, been able to, for all practical purposes, and I and has substantially stopped the transmission of AIDS among gay and bisexual men who are not concurrently substance abusers. In fact, AIDS prevention programs first started in San Francisco are now used throughout the country and have made safe sex the buzzword of the 80s. While Mayor Feinstein was receiving national recognition for her efforts at AIDS prevention, she was also in the limelight for another much more troubling reason, allegations of police misconduct when our special report, The Feinstein Years, continues on News 74 KCBS. In 1984, many people thought Diane Feinstein's crime fighters had run amok, and ACLU attorney John Crew was one of the mayor's harshest critics. Unfortunately, this mayor seems to have had a real blind spot when it comes to police issues, that sometimes in the face of overwhelming evidence to the contrary, 
she has seemingly taken the position of she's going to back the police department no matter what. There were the cops who hired a hooker to perform oral sex on a rookie at an academy graduation party. The officers who passed their time patrolling the Democratic National Convention by holding up large cards to rate female pedestrians on a scale of 1 to 10. There were the narcotics officers who raided Lord Jim's saloon in search of drugs and did not leave until they had terrorized a room full of innocent customers. Feinstein agrees her police department suffered from management problems, but says many of her attempts at reform were undermined by the politically powerful Police Officers Association. They defeated a charter amendment at the board that would go on the ballot to give the chief the same prerogatives that every other department head has, which is for disciplinary purposes to suspend for up to 30 days. Now, it is very important, I believe, that a chief of police have strong powers, be able to transfer people, be able to sanction, be able to run what is, after all, a quasi-military operation. And those powers have been eroded over the years. While it is true that charges of police misconduct and mismanagement often dominated the headlines during the Feinstein years, they do not tell the entire story. Mayor Feinstein was highly committed to tackling the city's crime problem. She hired 350 new officers, offered rewards for identifying criminals, set up a narcotics hotline, installed a new emergency 911 dispatch system, and bought a fingerprint computer requested by the voters. And by the time the bad boys in blue had faded from the public's consciousness, Feinstein was able to point proudly to a crime rate that had dropped 24% during her administration and response time for crimes in progress that had dipped to just a hair over two minutes. Governor, U.S. Senator, or perhaps even Vice President or President Feinstein. The Feinstein years, the future. Next on News 74, KCBS. As Diane Feinstein's final months as mayor draw to a close, her desk remains a drawing board of unrealized hopes and dreams. Mission Bay, Pacific Rim Trade, revitalization of the port, a mental health hospital, and of course, the downtown stadium. Her greatest challenge and one she may well not be able to conquer. But the stadium project is also a tribute to Diane Feinstein's perseverance, a don't-give-up-the-ship attitude that has kept her dogging many projects other mayors with less conviction would have abandoned long ago. It is that same persistence that has kept Feinstein steadfast in her quest to bring the USS Missouri to San Francisco, and the same quality that has enabled her to almost single-handedly twist the arms of the business community to finance $10 million of the cable car reconstruction. And it is that same persistence that will enable Diane Feinstein to leave office in January with a conviction that she has done a good job for the people of San Francisco. And I think one can always live with oneself if you really know you've tried to make the best decisions for all of the people. I couldn't live with myself if I didn't really feel I was a mayor that tried to represent the whole city, work hard, call them as I see them, with a view that the way I call them 
is for the benefit of everyone in the city. And I've tried to do that. Hadn't been easy, but I tried. Even some of Feinstein's worst defeats have miraculously turned into victories. The mayor's ordinance outlawing handguns was overturned by the courts and prompted the nerve-shattering 1983 recall election. But Feinstein defeated the recall effort by an astonishing margin, emerging with an iron grip on the reins of government and a firm hold on the city's political power structure. Feinstein's ego was bruised again when she was passed over by Walter Mondale for the Democratic vice presidential nomination. But when the Mondale-Ferraro ticket went up in flames, Feinstein emerged from the ashes more formidable than ever. So what next for Dianne Feinstein, the woman who nine years ago feared she was not up to the task of governing San Francisco? She is a different person today, tough, self-confident, in control. And on January 8, 1988, she will walk out of her office for the last time, close the door behind her, and join the ranks of the unemployed. So I think it's going to be a sense of relief. Um, I'm going to be able to answer the phone without a sense of apprehension that something has gone wrong. Now, my husband says that uh, three days into that new life, I'm going to be bored stiff. In fact, no one but no one thinks Dianne Feinstein is going into political retirement. Her political nemesis and one-time mayoral opponent, State Senator Quentin Kopp, expects to hear a lot more from Feinstein in the future. Listen, the sky's unlimited. This is America. It's a land of opportunity. She's very clever in terms of self-promotion. She's uh, good-looking. People like good-looking candidates. She's uh, certainly articulate. Uh, she has a gift of uh, expression. And she has a very gracious manner. Who knows how far she can go. Dianne Feinstein is clearly a popular politician. Her friends and enemies alike agree that the mayor is, in the words of Assembly Speaker Willie Brown, an interesting, refreshing, no-nonsense personality. But as Speaker Brown also says, it takes more than public support to forge a successful state and national political career. Political insiders, I suspect, find her a mystery. She is an unknown quality. Uh, she's not good old boy, buddy-buddy process. And so I think that uh, there, there's still such a mystery about her that uh, you really can't assess how they would rate her. Mayor Feinstein has been somewhat coy about discussing her political future, although recently she has talked about running for governor. At this stage, um, I haven't made a decision. One of the things that we have decided to do, though, is to put together an exploratory effort, take a look at it. There are a lot of issues that I'm very concerned with. Uh, really the educational system, which I happen to believe strongly has been a major bumble by Governor Duke Majin. These are things that I'm interested in and that I will begin to explore in the future, particularly when I, after next January. She could very well be the darling of the North. Uh, she's obviously going to have to play a little bit heavier uh, with the environmentalists than she is currently playing. Uh, but when she does that... Uh, her candidacy could be a very solid one in a wild-card contest involving six or seven other people. The view of Assembly Speaker Brown is shared by many other prominent Democrats, including U.S. Senator Alan Cranston. She might well run for governor of our state of California in 1990. 
and she would certainly be a strong candidate. Cranston and Feinstein, though both Democrats, have never been political allies. She has much closer ties to Republican U.S. Senator Pete Wilson, a friendship that Chronicle Washington Bureau Chief Larry Liebert says has backfired and limited her political options. Pete Wilson's people keep a special file in their office, they really do, of all the nice letters that Diane Feinstein has uh, sent to Pete Wilson over the years. All the letters where she said, uh, we're of different political parties, people. You've been a tremendous help to San Francisco. And each time she says that with her, uh, her sometimes uh, gushing enthusiasm, uh, they file it away just in case she should uh, think of running against him. And, uh, and she has said she wouldn't. Although the governor's race might seem the most obvious next step for Dianne Feinstein, there are other grander possibilities. Dwayne Garrett, the former national chair of the Mondale campaign, who is now chair of the Bruce Babbitt presidential effort, says simply that Feinstein is one of a small handful of superstars in the Democratic Party. Uh, I think it would be fair to say that there is no Democratic uh, uh, candidate, if he was elected president, wouldn't invite her to join the cabinet because she's had nine years of tremendous success here with a lot of visibility. As a result of the visibility, Garrett says Feinstein is now the third most well-known female politician in America, behind only Geraldine Ferraro and Elizabeth Dole. You hear a lot of people describe her in Margaret Thatcher-like tones, that she has, she has a commanding presence, she has an ability to communicate well, and at the same time she is um, uh, perceived as tough. And that is one of the questions that's always raised about Democratic candidates. Are they tough enough to say no? It is not at all unusual these days for people to wonder aloud if Dianne Feinstein could be vice president or even president. Alan Cranston and Dwayne Garrett think she could. Well, Dianne Feinstein is widely respected and widely known. And if she chose to enter the contest for the presidency, I see no signs that she is really considering that. But if she did, she might very well make a very strong showing. She also um, was considered for vice president last time, and I should think uh, might well be considered next time. I frankly think that Dianne Feinstein will be the first uh, Democratic woman uh, candidate for president, first nominee for president. And I think that'll happen by the turn of the century. Although Feinstein blushes a bit when supporters suggest she run for president, it is hard to believe she has not privately considered the idea during the quieter moments when she ponders her future. Even now, she speaks cautiously about her dream of someday winning a spot on the Democratic ticket. If there ever were uh, the opportunity, I would be interested in the vice presidential candidacy in the future. Um, I think, frankly, that that was my attraction to Walter Mondale, and to the extent it went his to me, and I'd like to write about this in my book, that I think I could play a real role in um, providing some oversight over the federal bureaucracy, and that's how I would look at the office of vice president. As Dianne Feinstein knows only too well, it is impossible to predict the future, and at times the most unexpected events can change the course of history and alter political fortunes. Feinstein is writing an autobiography that could become a bestseller and eventually catapult her into the Oval Office. But given the whims of the American people, she could just as easily fade into political oblivion. That is the one thing Dianne Feinstein has fought desperately over the past nine years to avoid. If she leaves behind a legacy, she hopes it will be this one. I hope that we manage the government well, 
and that we were able to provide with declining revenues increased services to people. Muni, police 350 new police officers, more books in libraries, more flowers and recreational facilities in parks, um, the AIDS program, the beginnings of a homeless program that's going to work, um, getting Mission Bay begun, getting Yerba Buena Center completed, beginning a major shipyard and ship repair industry with the Missouri here and a big economic development project in the middle of Bayview Hunters Point, uh, more housing built in a shorter period of time with less government money than at any other time in our history. These are some of the things that I hope to be remembered for. I hope people will say, you know, she really did try, she really did care, we think she did a good job. Barbara Taylor, News 74, KCBS. Remember to follow the News Vault from KCBS Radio on social media. On Facebook, we're at News Vault Podcast. On Twitter, find us at News Vault SF. On Instagram, we're at News Vault. Until our next episode, you are leaving the News Vault from KCBS Radio. T-Mobile has invested billions to light up America's largest 5G network from big cities to small towns, including right here in yours. And great coverage is just the beginning. Right now, families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus AT&T and Verizon when they switch. Visit your local T-Mobile store today. Plan savings with three lines of T-Mobile essentials versus comparable available plans. Plan features and taxes and fees may vary.